You're listening to In Her Voice, a podcast brought to you by Women in Hollywood. I'm your host, Melissa Silverstein, and this podcast is dedicated to supporting and amplifying the voices of women who work in the global entertainment business. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Today's conversation is with Mariam Keshavars. She's an Iranian-American writer, director, and producer. Mariam's first narrative feature fiction film, Circumstance, premiered to overwhelming critical acclaim at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival. The film won the coveted Sundance Audience Award. Mariam's sophomore feature, Viper Club, starring Susan Sarandon and Edie Falco, had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2018 and was released theatrically by Roadside Attractions. Mariam's third feature, The Persian Version, premiered in main competition at the Sundance Film Festival in 2023, where it won the U.S. Dramatic Competition Audience Award and the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award. Keshavars is the first director in Sundance history to win the Audience Award twice. The Persian version is now playing in theaters. Congratulations on this wonderful movie. My second time I watched it. And man, you kill me at the end. Oh, I know. It was the best and the most craziest to see New Yorkers crying. When did that happen? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's good. It's it's just the ending comes up and it bites you in the ass and you're like, oh, I'm crying <laughs> now. I know. I like to surprise people, you know what mm. I mean? They're, I appreciate they're like, they're, that. They think they're going to get my big fat Greek wedding. So I'm sorry. <laughs> thank, thank you for that. So I always like to start by asking directors kind of to give, well, you wrote the movie also, but kind of like your personal logline of the film. Oh, wow. Interesting. It's a story about a daughter who comes home after an estrangement with her family and finds out a family secret that takes her through three generations of the woman in her family. And she realizes that she's not as different from her mother than she thought. I like that. I found the film so interesting because it's going down one track and then it takes a completely different turn when we go to her mom. It just so works so well. Obviously, the film is Layla's journey to understand both who her mother is, but really in search of who she is, right? right? Yeah. And because her her identity as an, an immigrant is really upended when the grandmother tells her like, oh, no. The reason your family came to America is something totally different than what you thought and everything just shifts. But I wanted to also make sure that each of the three generations gets to tell their own story or their own version of the story and in, in their own style. So the stylistically is quite different. Also, you know, to get to the mother's trauma, I think it had to be much later in the film. So we had to not like her, go on a journey of exploring who she is and then really just be left with this core of this beating heart of this young girl, which is the mother. And the trauma that's passed on to her daughter. But it needed to happen late in the story, in the film. How long did it take you to write it and and then the process of getting it made? Just a lifetime. A lifetime yeah. in the writing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's your life. So in many ways, it, it really is a lived experience. But obviously, I joke, I say it's like a true story, sort of. Not only because certain things are changed and, you know, exaggerated for comedy, but also because of the structure. Because I don't think my mother stops time. There's magical realist elements. The structure 
is itself questioning what truth is, right? Because everyone has like a slightly different version, particularly the grandmother and mother have very different versions of the same story. This script was developed with Natalie Difford and Carolyn Kaplan at Cinereach. So they really are the ones who did all of the script development to the very final script that we shot. And they're amazing because I always wanted to do it as a comedy. They were always very, very supportive that I felt like there was a void in American culture in terms of representation of my part of the world, of immigrants. I felt like with all the xenophobia happening, but I really wanted a comedy. I wanted joy. I wanted joy to be the prevalent theme of the film, yeah. Resilient. Can you talk and a little bit about why yeah. why that was so important to you to, to have the joy being such an important piece of it? Well, first, because we're always so vilified in American and European, you know, media. And then, you know, it's terrorist one or hijabi two. And, and also we're just such a caricature often. And then even within Iranian cinema, which I love, love so much, it's often quite dark. It's very heavy themes. And I, I know my experience growing up was even amongst the most difficult times, both in Iran and in America. I think the women in the family found a way to keep joy alive and to keep things filled with life among struggle. And I just never, th and that really is an immigrant experience too, if you think about it. And I thought that it's never been portrayed. And so it was really important when we're vilifying immigrants that we also show that element so that people can connect. Like so many people have told me, oh, that's just like my friend, some Irish guy was like, that's just like mine for that guy was at the NYPD. He's like, just, just like my family or Chinese woman's like, just like my family. So these things that, because we haven't seen that, my only agenda is to show through all the flaws and all these different elements, the humanity of these people. And that's why you cry and laugh. I wanted to show all those elements. And I wanted more than anything for you to feel like you were two hours with my crazy family. So it's supposed to be a roller coaster ride too, right? Yeah. So I, I want to have fun on that ride. And then in terms of how long it took, it was the development of the script was probably like a year and a half of rewrites, like probably 10 to 14 drafts. It was 180 pages, the first script. And then I shot 89 pages. You shot 89 pages. Yeah, 89 pages was the final script. Wow. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, the financing actually happened pretty quickly. It's just that COVID hit and then delayed us two years. I think maybe we're in a slightly different place where these sort of stories are potentially marketable because we're looking at a global market. As I think one of the biggest flaws of Hollywood over the last, what, 20, 30 years has been their focus on the universality and believing certain stories that white men are universal but the reality is that the specificity of these stories makes them universal. Yes. I mean, it's been incredible just seeing how many different people feel like it's their story, that the, the details are different. But yes, it, it is the focus on the details that makes it feel familiar. And you talk about how you had to create your own path because there was no one before you who was like you. And I think this is a common theme with a lot of you know women writer directors and particularly people of color of that having to forge your own path and what has been the kind of burden of that I mean I think it could be a burden if you're filled with anger and resentment of like why am I not down this path but I always think of Ruth Gator Ginsburg said that they asked her how she became a Supreme Court justice and she said you know when I was coming out of law school no one would hire women so I went down the more academic route and I started to really hone and craft what my opinions were, what my perspective was on the law. 
And it's interesting how she approached that. And for me also, it's like, maybe I can't go down the more traditional path. I mean, a lot of women, women of color don't get that opportunity, no matter how much success they have with their films. So that you go down a path of why are you in cinema? What are you doing here? It's such a hard path and you focus on that. And then in terms of form, I've studied literature before I went to film. I teach advanced screenwriting often at different workshops. I do a lot of adaptations. This is not my first script. This is like my 20th script. And I always tell students, if you know the form really well, which I do, having done so much teaching and writing, you can play with it and break rules. I understand what the rules are in three-act structures. And this film, it does in many ways break rules. It even changes genres, but it's very specifically oriented to get you to that point of the trauma being handed off and to give you a sense that these women are quite different. But yet there has to be a cohesion, and the cohesion is that searching of the truth throughout the piece. So there's a balance of breaking the rules, but also carrying the audience through the rule breaking in a way that allows them to land emotionally, know all the rules and break them. I de definitely thought that there was, in terms of the type of film I wanted to make, there have been immigrant stories and all these great ones that are our predecessors from Ang Lee to Joy Luck Club to Mississippi Masala. Obviously there's been other films, but I, I wanted to, one, have things be back from the old country and the new country. And I wanted to talk about storytelling embedded within this story. I play with genre, I play with form. Mm. Because also the character is a filmmaker, the lead character in the film, right? She herself is a filmmaker. So I thought, how fun. She's a filmmaker narrating the story. Why have any rules? There are rules. I mean, they're hidden rules to me. Like there are rules that we operated on as a production team, right? But I didn't limit myself. Do you think that you gave yourself more permission on this one versus circumstance? Definitely. Circumstance is in some ways more of a traditional three-act structure. It's more slice of life-ish, but it does have funny elements too. I think with this, like circumstance, I wanted to get back to the spirit of making circumstance when I made this film. My second film was not a good experience for me. So I wanted to get back to one, why I make films, and two, have as much freedom as possible, both in the writing of the script and the execution. I had final cut on this film. That was very important to me, to have control of how the film was made. And I had amazing development producers who let me tell the story I wanted to tell. So it was very close in terms of spirit, of indie spirit, of being punk rock going back to my first film, because with my second film, people would be like, oh, no, this is how it's done, Marianne. We do it this way. We do it this way. It felt like chains on me. I wanted something that was my vision. And for better or for worse, and maybe it didn't work, I wanted it to be as madcap as it is to talk to me. I don't think anybody <laughs> questions when a dude says he wants his vision. So why would right. we question when a woman says she wants her vision? I mean, I love that everything, everywhere, all at once. I remember the producer saying, oh, we read the script and the lookbook and we had no idea. We didn't understand it, but we went with it. And obviously women don't always, they definitely don't get those chances. But I think what was special in this is that it was a true story and that it was coming from a place of authenticity and that I could attest to, but that I was playing with the form and the style. And I give a lot of credit to Sony Worldwide that financed that they really were in support of, you know, my vision. And I think also making it at a lower price also helps. I didn't have the burden of a $25 million film.
Yeah. So you said in the New York Times, that great piece about that you feel like this is the culmination of your career. I hope it's not. I hope you have a lot more to do. <laughs> it's a culmination of why I came into film. I came into film to change a narrative. I came into film because post 9-11 made me feel not only invisible, but an enemy. I was in mourning too. I'm a New Yorker. My brothers worked in front of the towers. My brothers are doctors. They volunteered to help people in all the trauma that ha- followed those years. And yet their names are Hossein and Mohammed, and there was a lot of suspicion around that. To me, that was so reminiscent of my childhood, of the hostage crisis and all the years of axis of evil, all of the vilification, but particularly 9-11, because we were New Yorkers and we mourned what happened to our city. And yet there was a suspicion around us just because of our names often. Mm-hmm. And even when I would enter America, oh, what brings you to America? I'm like, I'm going home. Like, honestly, <laughs> they would ask me that when I would enter JFK. And I'm born in New York City. Like and you had you an American passport? America? I'm born in New York. Yeah, I know. So like, why passport. would they ask you that? Exactly. Why would they ask me that? And that's what we were made to feel. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, you know what? This narrative is not what America is about. But it certainly became the rhetoric of post-9-11. And, and forget about how we were overseas, you know, how the Middle East was portrayed. That's another thing. You, if you dehumanize people, they have no face, they have no culture, they have no laughter. There's no three-dimensionality. It's really easy to bomb them and kill yeah. them. They're faceless. So I think I wanted to create a connection, not just of our story here, but I don't think you can understand immigrants unless you understand where they come from. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I wanted to have that interplay. And so for me, it was all the things of why I came into cinema coming to a head with this. And then also knowing that I don't want to perpetuate a sense of heaviness and, and pain that is so unfortunately so prevalent in our world because of politics and all these different aspects. I wanted to highlight the aspects of the human spirit that I find. It's the thing that gets us through the day, essentially, yeah. as a culture. Let's just talk about women in Iran. There was a woman, Iranian woman, who won the Nobel Peace Prize this year. Mohammed, yeah. Right, and she's in jail, and Masamini. Women in Iran are on the forefront of people's minds. Can you talk a little bit about how, through your work and telling these stories, how do you connect to today's movement, the struggle for women's independence? If you look at every film I've ever made, from my shorts to now, even my Susan's Ryan film, it's about women who break the rules. It's about women who go against status quo to get the thing that they need because society, for some reason or another, be it the law, be it their parents, don't allow them to be the person that they want. The Women Life Freedom Movement is incredible, not because it happened today, because it's a long... Nagas Mohammed has been in jail for 10 years. My mother struggled way before the, this regime, with even with the king, to stay in school. So unfortunately, the patriarchal structure has been in existence before this regime. It will be in existence after this regime. In America, it's in existence. So it's really about, my work has always been about women who go against the patriarchy. I don't really know how to make films that are not about that in many ways, because no matter what the subject is and no matter what the storyline is, that's always prevalent. Amen. And just, you know, and so be uh, my films in Iran and here and documentaries, even my films in Argentina, they're about that because those things are universal. And I think the Women Life Freedom Movement took a shape 
so strongly. Not there's been many other political movements in Iran. Why did this one take shape right. for the world? Why do eighty thousand people in Berlin, a hundred thousand in New York? That's not just Iranian Americans, or that's not just Iranians in Germany. That's women across the world saying that this is an issue. We certainly have our rights being stripped away in the United States. When we speak their names, we speak our own names also. So I think that was what's special about that movement is that it became a global movement for women's rights. People felt like they were reflected in their struggle. You've been doing this for a while. Have you noticed any change in terms of more opportunity for women to tell their stories, women of color? Have you seen a change and what advice would you want to share with people who are still trying to tell their stories and haven't had success yet? I think there's certainly like a change in like much more women directors are being hired, like an episodic, for instance, but are as many women being allowed to create shows? That's like more higher echelon. There are, but it's not, it's still not nearly to parody. That's where the real change happens, where you're not just executing other people's work, but you're actually creating and saying that this is the work that's going to be made and that and, and when you're in that position of showrunner or creator you have also a lot more power you can also hire anyone you want we know that people like Ava DuVernay do that there are other showrunners that do that that's the most important change that we can have because then those are the stories that get out I think it's still a significant struggle for women much more I mean I even look at my own classmate it's very clearly gendered not by the most talented people out of school, but it's a gendered process. But I think what has changed is this idea that women help each other and networking. A journalist was looking at my thank yous. It was like every female director ever that works in America was thanked in my film. And that's because a lot of them helped me. Questions about finance, questions about this. I had a problem. Like, how do I deal with that? And becoming more and more of a community that helps each other as opposed to feeling that we're at odds with each other and, you know, training the next generation. That's some that networking, which has been always the good old boys club. I think finally people are realizing that's a, also a very important way to get ahead and to help each other. So those elements are are changing. We know that we have to keep battling, but just also being able to get together. We have this like a brown girls dinner club. It's like a bunch of BIPOC female directors. It's like an informal group. We get together for dinner like every few months just to share stories and and to feel heard and then to go back into the trenches. That's lovely. Yeah, but I think the best thing we can do is make stuff and hopefully that it's commercial, that it sells or people watch. We live in a corporate society that's capitalism, right? If we can actually break through and prove that those things are successful. But as we know, there's a lot of elements to making that successful. It's not just making a good film. It's how much money they put in p All the things that help make a film successful is not only just the quality. So that's also another thing that we start to realize as women why sometimes your stuff not as successful are they putting enough resources in the right places to promote it totally agree with you all right so i have to uh let you go but i want to thank you so much for your time and for, for sharing your story with all of us thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode we would love for you to share with a friend or better yet follow us on spotify and give us five stars or leave us a review on apple podcasts Spreading the word really helps us reach as many people as possible. You can also subscribe to the Substack for the Women in Hollywood weekly newsletter of all content buying about women that is opening and streaming. You can sign up directly at womenandhollywood.com. In Her Voice is produced by Leonie Marsh. 
This is a Women in Hollywood Productions podcast. I'm Melissa Silverstein. Until next time, goodbye.